0: In a funny way, books raised me. I didn't have the things a child needs to be a child. Security, safety, comfort, love. But I always found happiness in learning new things. When I turned eight, my mother passed away from her battle with AIDS. I remember how even at her funeral, I was thinking about how I'd get my homework done. Right after that, I was brought to this country, and the only thing I could bring with me were my love of books, learning, and knowledge. In high school, I used to dream of how I would explore outer space, when I was suddenly drowned by their words, criminal, illegal, and I thought, how could a human be prohibited by law? I was so confused. My first reaction was laughter, but laughter turned to tears and rage. I made up my mind. I was going to fight to go to college and continue my education. I shared my story and quickly found that there were many like me. I began to speak out. At first it felt good. I felt like I could bring about change. But one day I heard a voice on the radio and I realized it was me. But it wasn't me. It wasn't my story. It was the story of a perfect poster child. They twisted my devotion to education into a sick plea to my oppressors. It was slowly killing me, having to face the people that were denying me the basic things a human needs to be a human, to beg them for scraps from their fruitful plate, the very same plate they had filled by raping, enslaving, and killing my ancestors and my brothers and sisters around the world. I came to see that this was not just about me not just about going to college, but about fighting the injustice experienced by all immigrants and all people suffering. Even today, as I am denied the things a human needs to be a human, I lie in bed with a new book. I glance over at the shelf and see the books I read as a child, and think of what I will write in my own.
1: This short story is the audio from a video created by a young woman who identifies herself as Kay, the letter. She made this piece at a digital storytelling workshop at the Story Center in the fall of 2012. Although it has an office and a classroom in Berkeley, California, the Story Center is not merely a place. It's actually a conviction that we all have stories to share that can inspire, teach, bring joy, bear witness, and heal. It's also a process that introduces people to the stories at their center that they've carried with them all their lives. The center's impact over nearly three decades has been both intensely personal and global. This conversation with center director Joe Lambert explores the story of the Story Center, its history, its practice, and its influence. Joe describes himself as a small businessman that's kept a little business going for a long time. He's also unabashed in adding, and we want to be revolutionaries, with the impetus once again, in Joe's words, making good stories that help us.
0: Story. Story. Story.
1: This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, Escuchador. So... Uh what's your street name <laughs> for what you do?
2: Uh I got I say chief listener. Ah. And one is it's pompous. So you know, I'm thinking about who, who is this man and why does he call himself the chief listener? I think when you are a manager, your main job is to listen, right? Mm-hmm. I also happen to run Story Center in which I'm arguing the whole planet's main job is to listen. So I don't think I was ever going to be a very successful creative artist. I, at some point, I realized as an organizer and then as a manager of nonprofits and stuff that I was a pretty good at just working through negotiating the stress of people who are trying to get things done. And, and unlike a lot of adult children of alcoholics, in my family, I was that person, too. I was the diplomat. <clears throat> and so, listening, you know, uh, Guillermo Gomez and Peña used to use mm-hmm. the word cultural diplomat. We're cultural diplomats.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but I think it's still listening. <laughs> so I'm going to accept my street name is el jefe de escuchar is the v- verb, so it would be escuchar. Hey, Sounds kind of cool. Oh, it does es sound escuchador. cool. Absolutely. El jefe
1: So then the follow-up, obviously, you said you, you came to realize you were not going to be a main stage player. So what was the path that took you into the place that you're in right now?
2: Yeah, again, I still like the narrative of my my, my father's son, and he used to create newsletters for the company gate where he handed out the the flyers to the people going into the factory and they didn't read like, you know, buy unions. They they read like here's your story, what's going on. Why and why your story matters and why getting mistreated by a boss is not You probably could have better than that. You probably have more rights. And so I I still prefer to think, all I'm doing is carrying out my father's work in a new century. And that work was to get people to see the dignity in their own lives. And you can do that by any number of (laughs) processes. But one of them is to stop and consider what's happening in your life and the story that matters. Traveling through the arts... You know, when I was in school, I was trained to be a playwright and even maybe even a dramaturg is fair, because theater at UC Berkeley was pretty shitty. I mean, (laughs) the dramatic arts department was not a great one for actually creating dramatic artists, but it was a great school for theory. There were many people who wrote amazing material about the analysis of theater as as a cultural experience and throughout the ages. You know, dramaturgy was a hard job to get. I remember when I came up, I was like, who do I want to be like? I want to be like Oscar Eustace because he was the dramaturg for the Eureka Theater. But I, you know, I knew pretty quickly I didn't want to be that guy because I couldn't have fun organizing the the integration of political activism and cultural events. I, To do that, I had to still be an organizer, which is who I was. I mean, that was my first career.
1: Which is what your dad was, really,
2: right? Yeah, And, and I mean, honestly, if you think about... I moved out here in 1976 to California, dropped into the revolutionary left, got involved in the International Hotel into something called the Tenants Action Group in San Francisco. And TAG was in the active fight on behalf of all the communities fighting against redevelopment, but we were also just a tenant landlord counseling group, right? Through the International Hotel, I hooked up with a bunch of Asian activists, revolutionaries and became part of that formation in the old pre-party left of the 1970s. Followed that then to Texas, where I was doing organizing in Texas, but it was in Texas that I met uh, a guy named Thomas Milanson and Lindy Yenny. Thomas was a playwright. Lindy was a director from Zimbabwe by way of South Africa. And and they had a play called in This is South Africa. And I had done theater in high school. I was like, I want to do this. So I got to be in the play about South very community, local, three-show production. But with that bug, I was like, ooh, I want to do cultural work. I was running the Harris County Tenants Alliance, the first Mm -hmm. tenant-friendly organization in Texas. When I came back to Cal, I did theater. And I did research on the people's theater movement of the 60s, 70s. And as part of that, I interviewed everybody for a research paper on Bay Area political theater. I'm three months from getting out of school. I call Susan Hoffman, who's running the the People's Theater Coalition. And Susan says, well, what's up? And I said, well, I'm looking for some summer work. And she says, no kidding. The guy that works for us has been having some health problems And he said he wants to take a couple of months off on July. So will you, you know, come in and cover for him? And I said, what does he do? Well, he's the theater manager. Oh, I can do that. So sure. Warren Johnston became one of the first people to die of AIDS in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And then at the memorial, and Susan leans over to me and says, I'm pregnant. Uh, You're going to have to take off. (laughs) And and I'm sort of left holding the key. But there's no money. I mean, there's no money. And there's not a cash flow because people, you know, between Reagan and Dubai and we were screwed. So, you know, I'm just holding the key and going, well, I guess it's good. I got a key to a theater in San Francisco. That's not a bad thing to have. <laughs> but then I had to kind of dig my way out of
1: trouble. Part two, a futurist organizer. So Joe did manage to dig himself out of trouble and eventually moved on to a producing theater with three of the Bay Area's most talented theater artists at a place called Life on the Water. I asked him how that creative opportunity melded with his zeal for organizing.
2: You know, I was going to political meetings every night of the week. I had two identities, a political activist that was engaged in all sorts of things, and this guy that was the executive director of the People's Theater Coalition. But it wasn't really until Life on the Water, which was 86, 87, 88, where, where I began to have an identity. And even then, I preferred to be the guy organizing the artists. In this case, Leonard Pitt, Ellen Sebastian, and Bill Talon. And <clears throat> all of that meant I was sort of frustrated and I wanted more creative projects. But I never wrote the Great American Play, which I thought I would. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but the other thing that you've done, it seems to me, in addition to listening, which is by its nature a passive act, is that you have connected a few dots, I believe.
2: Well, I I was always a futurist, right? My first wife was a computer programmer, and so we had all this kind of computer stuff around and I was going, oh, where, where are we going with this? And I, did, I, I completely understood the personal computer. I mean, I understood it like my dad had mimeographs. It was like, oh, cool, self-publishing, right? It was like, oh, we can do all these things. If it's going to lower the, the threshold of participation. So to me, like if you look at desktop publishing and then digital video, it, it was all the same. What do we do with the tool that now it's a little more broadly distributable? and certainly as we even got to smartphones, yeah, I connected those dots. I think I used to describe it, Bill, that I understood the information revolution was a kind of iron horse coming through the communities of the world, in America in particular, but it was was like an iron horse. And I used to say, you can stand outside of it and shoot arrows at it and go, I hate you. I can jump on the goddamn thing and try to redirect it, do something with the technology as it came along. And I was always like, let's jump on it. Let's make the best of it. Yeah, there'll be a bunch of bullshit that will come on, but let's try to make it work for the communities that, you know, are still under attack. And how do we do that? And I thought digital storytelling is about right because it's a mixture of this communal anger narratives, I mean, social justice narratives. And, and the very personal anger. <laughs> or, you know, that sounds like it's, like it's, it's all kvetching. But it, in a way, we need to process our oppressions. And I well, knew we had a tool for processing oppression that was pretty cool.
1: I think a, a lot of people who have something to say think of that digital universe as impenetrable. And what you've done for them is, is to say, come on over. Check it out. It's like fine. some people are, are afraid to make an omelet. Let's just crack some eggs and, and do it, you know, and yeah. see what happens.
2: Yeah. And ironically, what it brings up for me is enormous inadequacy that I never became a programmer because, in my mind, really under the hood, as you program, you make the tool that then becomes the thing, and then you teach more people to program. So I'm really proud of all those incredible programs that are out there that are teaching people to code not just kids but adults i felt like once i had the the bowl of digital media not only video but photography and audio and etc once i was had my hands on that i i got that's the rest of my life that's a lot of stuff that's a lot of creative things Mm -hmm. that don't require programming so Mm -hmm. to speak that you can do but i i think the, the heroes of this are the people that are getting people access to the way it wo- really works under the hood, to the computer science part of this. Because in the end, even the tools I use are made limited by the imagination of the programming cast, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and they often enormously underestimate the capacity of, of normal people to work in more complex ways of expression. Meaning, it was a long way of saying that a lot of consumer software is is too stupid, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the professional software is not designed for elegance. It's designed like a computer game. It's it's purposely complex. We video, which the tool we use now is, I think that's kind of what we needed. You know, we needed something that was complex but also kind of elegantly put together accessible across platforms.
1: So let me just interject here for somebody who's going, we video story, digital storytelling. What is that? Just my own experience. I am not a filmmaker. I wasn't. Now I am. And all it took, <laughs> this is the testimonial, was a couple of days at the Story Center in Berkeley, California, and I got the bug, the same bug that you got, and got excited and learned how to do it. And the the technology did not get in my way. And that was probably the, the biggest gift. And I wouldn't have ventured down that road without your invitation to come and do that. And you're doing that for a lot of people around the world who probably didn't see themselves as, number one, having an important story to tell, and number two, being able to tell it so beautifully and elegantly as they do. If anybody goes on your website, they're going to find dozens and dozens of examples of just extraordinary stories, which is, to me, that's a pretty major deal.
2: I appreciate that. And I always like hearing people's own you know, singular experience Going through a process like this. What you know is along the path of this, what seemed to be a media education, media arts entrainment, all right, you know, you're learning about a piece of software, became a whole new way of processing life experience. You know, it's not meant to be a medical or, you know, psychological intervention, but the dimensions of this work in those spaces turned out to be extremely useful for a whole lot of people and communities. And I would be overstated to say it's an ideal tool for processing trauma in a communal context, but it's certainly a very good tool (laughs) for processing trauma. And the, the majority of our work has grown in the direction of Those people that do that work, meaning they're trauma processing professionals in community setting, they use digital storytelling because they found it as effective as XYZ or more effective than XYZ as interventions. So we want this tool. To me, that's the part where when you walk into our environment, unless you kind of already knew that already, we still get plenty of people who's like, well, I just want to take a digital video class. And then at the end of it, they're like, Oh, my God, that was the most intense, wonderful, beautiful, fantastic experience I've ever had. Best workshop, not just best workshop, like best three days of my life kind yep. of thing.
1: Yep.
2: And then they get addicted, and then they're like, what's the next workshop?
1: Now, imagine for a moment two red Chuck Taylors. You know, the shoes, dancing in slow, expressive, purposeful steps on your screen just close your eyes and listen
3: I would have nightmares of my mom's dad I can still see the house where it happened can still smell the rain heart racing I can never go back to the house but I can do this I dance to forget At rehab, every night after dinner I would go back into my room and lock the door and close my eyes. Lights everywhere, me on the dance floor and two speakers behind me. I danced to recover. Some people dance in partners, but not me. I always danced alone. I danced to forgive. I heard a new beat, and I found a partner, and I forgave myself. My love is my music. My daughter is my dance. Dance is my life.
1: That was Rocio Vilescas in an audio excerpt from her film created at the Story Center called Tears in Every Step. Rossio is one of the thousands of first-time digital storytellers that have passed through the center and come away with a new sense of what is possible with one's own well-crafted story. I asked Joe to describe why the center's approach is so compelling for the people who come there to learn.
2: So that's why we're in business, because people get excited. But You know, once you can do child soldiers from the Congo in a workshop, Or, you know, just the list of of hurt humans that I've worked with, my other eight program staff I've all worked with, you know, people come in and we treat them like they're survivors. It's like, we're all fucking survivors. This experience called life, and it hurt us. (laughs) It wounded us. And so, and yes, we can hold your story. Yes, you could talk about anything horrific or complicated or just joyous yeah, you can talk about it. And people go, wow, <laughs> that's really good. How did you figure out how to do that?
1: And it's a counter also to a meta story, which is, well, who would be interested in your story, right? And even if they were, I'm sorry, you know, the queue is just so long and there's no room. And it it's the complete opposite experience when someone comes up at the end of of the three days and says, my family, my colleagues, they're not going to believe I did this. They're they're not going to believe this.
2: I mean, another thing, you know, about like being a poor theater person is you make do with what you got and you make beauty out of the basics of things. So the other thing that I think we figured out is these are very sophisticated tools that can do very sophisticated things. But what if they did something relatively simple and elegant? Would it work? At, well, yeah. And I think as a result, the, the ability to get an artifact that you feel sort of impressed by <laughs> uh, in relatively short amounts of time. Kind of dealt with another dynamic I think I had with creative process, like to get something on stage or or to make a film, film or to, it's like way too much work. It took too long. My attention span, my patience was not great <laughs> enough to want to wait for the big show when I could give this little experience that gave you a taste of what it's like to compose a song, to make a to, to sculpt a nice piece. It gives you a taste of something. And it's the algorithm of the amount of energy needed. I mean, bravery is lots of it, but it, the amount of energy, actually time to get something on the other side that looked pretty cool was extremely good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, that's it, because in some ways, the scalability of any process is that algorithm of like mm-hmm. time and focus and output. Lots of people start things that they never finish in every kinds of community arts practice. But you get something done in this that's evidence of your intent. It may not be perfect, but I still say they have a little bit more straightened uh, back. Look at what I did. Look at what I did. But it's me. I see myself in that piece. And that's tricky, right?
1: It is tricky. But there's something else there. I realize that so much of the media that I see has about 50 professionals between me and the thing I'm watching. And I'm used to it. And I am beguiled and entertained by Hollywood. But when you go back to your archive, and I, I listen to people, when you get the one-to-one relationship between the person speaking to you and their photographs from their attic and their story and their often sweet or terrified, authentic voice, it's like, whoa, OK. I mean, I, I, I don't trust the digital universe because it's so easily manipulated. And the digital stories that I have heard from your website are often as close as I can think of that the digital comes to sitting across the table with the person holding their hand and to me that's breaking a barrier because you know when you're watching james bond or whatever i think most people have a part of their brain that says this is cool but it's the least authentic thing i've ever seen in my life right but actually having a feeling of the first voice the this smells and tastes and sounds real right yeah that's important part three first voice first So, Joe, this impulse, this understanding that the power stories told by people who live them has actually been emerging for a while, right?
2: Well, even in that sense of, I mean, The Moth and This American Life and StoryCorps, there's a phenomenon. And I know Dave Isay would say this with the work he did as a youth radio producer in New York in the late 80s, early 90s, that he was trying to disintermediate the voice of the public.
0: Good morning. Day one. Walking to school. Leaving out your dog. This is my dog ferocious. You know why he got that name if you hear him bark. I see the ghetto every day, walking to school. guys standing on the corner burning the fire. Be here summertime, wintertime, spring, fall every day. The drink in the hand, probably some white pork. Willie P, Um, Jack Daniels, E&J. I live here. This is home. What's up, Henry? What's up, doo This is my walk every day. It's going to take me on a little journey through my life. Here's my life. Here. Yeah.
1: That was Lee Allen Jones in an excerpt from the 1993 radio documentary, Ghetto Life 101, which was created by StoryCorps founder Dave Isay and his partners Lee Allen and Lloyd Newman, who at the time were 13 and 14, respectively.
2: I mean, this is like all of the community arts work is, can we get out of the way of the voice Mm -hmm. of the people as they are and can we train audiences to appreciate it you know i remember we did the play about the building of the golden gate bridge you know (laughs) and we make the play and it was like yeah you kind of got it and anna devere smith man she's good (laughs) but it's still better when they say it yes and and we like documentary film because you wait until they say it you can own your own total valuation that what makes you unique and special in the world makes you unique and special in the world and, and don't feel ashamed of that. Enjoy the, the quirk of it, the quivering your voice and the timidness here and the intimacy of saying it just like that. And, and I think we just try to keep that as best we can, knowing that, in fact, for a lot of people, any process of self-aware creativity makes them so nervous. Yeah. <laughs> and uptight, you know, what they say in the story circle is like, God, I should have recorded it because it was so beautiful when you just said it. In. And then you write this thing, but you won't write like you talk because your third grade teacher beat it out of you. I you know, but that's the good news is StoryCorps and early moth was truly inspired by the off the cuff. You know,
1: yep. The, the first heart. voice.
2: But yeah, it's the way you say it when you said it the first time. And if you can get that down, it's really good. And and I I I don't like the word authenticity because now we can recreate, all, you know, all of this can be shtick, you know, it's shtick. But there is something about feeling as if there's less mediation. It's exactly what you said. There's just less distance between that author and my ears.
1: Yep, that's it.
2: And eyes. And, and I like that. And even if it's rough around the edges, I still almost like the, the roughness. I used to joke, I love rehearsals more than I like shows because it was just more interesting.
1: <laughs> well, that's the way it is, in, in, at least in songwriting. And yeah, actually, exactly. this so this machine here has been my saving grace mm. because I'll wake up in the middle of the night moaning a lyric and a, a melody that has just been dreamed. Mm. And if I w- wasn't able to do that, first of all, I'd never get it. And number two is there was something about that first moment of it coming out. I- inevitably, as a songwriter, I am chasing that first moment forever,
2: <laughs> you know. There's a great writer to talk about. It's like you're standing in the field and, and suddenly you hear the train and it's, you know, the muse is coming. And it's like you're running back from the end of the house to get to the writing, get to the typewriter or the pen or whatever. Before it gets away. I think it's a wonderful skill, those people that can ride that train. You know, they yeah. can see it coming, get on it, do what you need to do, and jump off at the next place. And Now you got that in your back pocket. Travel with that.
1: Part four, unpacking the impossible. So I asked you to think about some anecdote, a story of some sort that represents something that you think is powerful about this work. So what do you got?
2: I'm going to tell a story that I wrote about
1: uh,
2: in my textbook, the Digital Storytelling, now subtitled Story Work for Urgent Times. It's in the chapter where we talk about our work of how we hold space, mm-hmm. called the story circle. And, you know, this was a project that I got to do some of. It's mainly led by Andrea on our side, but the San Francisco Department of Public Health had a federal-funded program that they called the Children's System of Care, which was an interagency, you know, like schools, public safety, social services, and public health, integrated ways of helping people uh, affected by public health issues. And and a subsection of this thing was called No More Funerals, and it was about the impact of violence in, in the Hunter's Point Community in mm. San Francisco, for people that don't know, that's historically African American community. I mean, there were shipyards back in World War II. A lot of people were working in that area. And Bayview Hunters Point became one of three African American communities of size in San Francisco. And we had this one workshop where the kids were all gathered in this office. And I remember it was about seven, eight kids. They were like 14 to 17. And the first one told a story that I thought was about the most heartbreaking story I had ever heard. Uh, And because I do this work a lot, I had an odd feeling about that, which was, oh, it's going to be so hard for the other people in the room because it's going to set this sort of, you know, well, that was a really dramatic, intense story. (laughs) I'm not going to have one like that. Instead, it went around the circle. I'm almost getting emotional talking about it. And it was as if, you know, you, th- you think that's bad. <laughs> Let me share mine. And it was just, and these were all babies. And the, the horror that they had experienced, that they were sharing probably just a snapshot of the horror. It, 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 you know, it was like one after another was breaking my heart, breaking my heart. Breaking my heart, you know, the last one was this young woman. I think I can tell this much, right? Um, She was from the inner city. She had a very special trip that she was given to go with her sister up to, uh, God, I think, if I remember this correctly, both her parents had died in violence, both her parents. Her and her sister, through the foster youth program or something like that, were given a a trip to go up to the gold country to to have a week in a camp. The camp is a wonderful place and they're enjoying herself and at some point they're both in the pool. Her sister starts screaming that her head is bursting, you know, And, uh, and they've come together And her sister doesn't die in her arms, but she has a cerebral embolism. They're both airlifted out of there to a hospital, and her sister dies that day. But it was the combination of, like, your life has been fucked every single way, and then God is going to come take your baby sister away as well. And I remember, you know, it's like there was no air in the room. Amongst the adults in the room, there was no air. We, we, we were no longer capable of talking or thinking. <laughs> and I remember one of the wonderful woman, Belma, she was the caretaker. And she was like, well, here's what we're all going to do for self-care after the workshop. And we're going to make sure that we do something nice for ourselves. And the, a lot of the stories that were made in that context were never public. They were part of a kind of, we built an internal video vault for them to be used by the community and the San Francisco Public Health, but I remembered it stayed with me that story circles are about protectiveness and readiness to tell stories, and usually you're sort of discouraging people from fully going there because the re-traumatization that goes on when a series of intense stories are told one after another. But the flip side of that is that these moments of listening when they're conceived well and there's a sense of protectiveness, they can be circles of, of absolute bravery, of heroism, in which you unpack the the impossible in order to hold it and to to make something sensible about the insensible. And and I never will forget the lesson of that because I always am quite Worried about people being re-traumatized, triggered, affected, everything, every psychological professional. And say, be very, very, very careful when you have people share stories. I want to say, yeah, but, yeah, but it's also true that those moments can be liberatory. And it's safe to say we got through that one okay. And and those kids made it through. And, and we did have some psychological services before and after, but they had support, but uh, I think it's helped. You know, I think they went through the experience with some um, impact. It gives you a sense of where we've been,
1: you know. Yeah, just to paint the picture, the Story Circle was in service to creating digital stories.
2: Digital stories that were part of the provision of support services to the communities affected by varying kinds of violence. Mainly this was either street level or in family violence and telling stories about getting through being a survivor of that. So there would be stories about confrontations with police and family members being killed. There would be stories about domestic violence. There would be stories just about, you know, getting through life, uh, coming up from that particular socioeconomic cultural context. And so they'd be shown between the professionals and community members as part of their service provision. You know, you know, sometimes the counseling services, sometimes it's other kinds of support services to help kids stay in school or to help kids, you know, get out of juvie.
1: So basically building bridges between the helping professional world and the actual on-the-street reality.
2: Yeah. Well, all of our work, if you look at the history of of moving towards student-centered learning and client-centered health provision and tell the story the way you tell it as your story in culture. It's like first, first voice. We all have the same ideas that we who are on the outside well-trained in some professional capacity can't really know what it's like to be that person. Right. So they need to talk to each other and we need to get out of the way, and we need to develop peer mechanisms of support and solidarity, so that increasing numbers of people that run those programs aren't some person from some completely different life experience, but are people that came through a similar life experience. Yeah. The good news is, all around the world, that was happening a lot more. You know, we're privileged in as for sure outsiders. I was always the only white person involved, but it was really about. Let's hear it through their words. And a lot of the helping professions were doing these peer-driven things like sort of justice. Peer-driven self-awareness because it doesn't work for the outsider to say, well, you know, you should think this.
1: Screw you. Well, you and I both say that as though that's common knowledge. My experience is that it is common knowledge among people who are willing to accept the reality that the road to change is going to be taken by the people who are going to be doing the changing. And no matter what, it's a, it's long, hard work. Mm. It's, it's not a, a weekend workshop or a checklist or a pill, but that's there. I mean, I I, I feel like in, in many cases now more than ever, the idea that humans are still humans and we still hurt and it takes a long time to heal and we need each other for that. And there's no shortcuts. I mean, I hate to say it, but in some circles, that's a an audacious and revolutionary. Yeah. Say.
2: I mean, admittedly, I, I want to say I've been lucky to work with like-minded people mm-hmm. and I know what you're saying is true. And so when I say it's, it's a trend it's to these other things that if were you to go into a conference on education or a conference on social service or even participatory research in the academic world they're all saying the same thing the first yeah. voice matters the people if this is for them what do they get out of it yeah <laughs> and and where do they have power in the in the thing and and you're right you know some people don't want people liberated they want them stuck exactly in their oppression for the rest of time and those people um, are out there and we're still resisting. God yes, damn it!
1: Absolutely. And, and so we persist. Right? Well, they're making themselves more obvious too, which is really <laughs> there's
2: that. <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's a dynamic. So we'll figure it out. Here's another story. I did executive training, and I this was when Dana was my compatriot, Dana, who was very corporate friendly, and he dragged me along to some of these corporate gigs, and it led to corporate executive training. I went to some retreat to be a Educator with a couple of other well-known corporate leader guys, and one of these guys had these calling cards, which was a way to get to your essential self, a guy named Richard Leiter. And we did I did it with everybody else because we were a bunch of vice presidents, and I was like, all right, I'm in. And it, and it came down to, like, you choose words, choose words, and, and mine got down to enabling justice. And I know that, you know, I have a deep burn inside of me about what feels like it's holding back a road to justice for individuals or communities. It's a deep, 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 angry burn. And in the culture we're in, we uh, we are still in a whole bunch of trouble about people that want to remove the justice of lots of people. I mean, we know all this. uh, Yes. And yet I, I feel like The work I'm doing is to create the conditions in which the dignity and agency of an individual is seen as having enough value to go out in the world and change it. Because I think an an unsignified life is a life that can be destroyed either by the person themselves or by other people.
1: Part 5. What's next? So, given that, here are two related questions. As we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, we're in the middle of a very interesting time in human history. It's not just West Coast California. It's not just the United States, as it often is when Americans talk about things. It is the world. And what you do connects to the world. We're in the middle of a long-term project to, number one, deal with what we're dealing with, and number two, maybe use this moment to leverage a future that's incrementally better than the past we just went through. What have you learned as a teacher, as an educator, as a facilitator, as a maker, that you think people who are interested in healing our communities could think about and make use?
2: Making space for processing trauma. Meaning this is traumatic for a lot Mm -hmm. of people. They can't talk to their parents. They can't making space to talk about that and listen to stories is something that some of us in our Western cultural way, we forget we need to do. So at the simplest level, I think it's that. And within that is the this, the other story. The pandemic is a story, but the pandemic wouldn't be the same story were it not for the nature of authoritarianism on the planet, starting with the Chinese, starting with their own government, maybe in Russia, maybe in India. But we live in a very complex world that will decide to kowtow to great power and say, we should trust those guys, and they are only guys, right? or we're going to reinvent the world to, in, in obviously, <laughs> my humble opinion, to prevent global extinction. I, I mean, it's like barbarism and extinction, or a sustainable future in which maybe democracy plays an important role. I won't say the leading role, but it plays a role. Let's say that story matters to get people to move toward decency. Yes. And away from thuggishness. <laughs> story matters. And it's a battle. It's a battle of ideas. So I want to say the pandemic is the pandemic because in the battle of ideas, the stories of compassionate wearing of masks got muddled. That, that was bad storytelling. Marable. And frankly, when we have that, when we're slow, we on the cultural resistance, <laughs> we're also responsible that our, our forms of resistance have to be up to date in a public health mm-hmm. sense. Maybe. I'd like to think Story Center with some project like the Nurse Story Project, because this would be the final thought I have on this. It's, the world won't be saved by those of us who protect ourselves inside our comfortable mm-hmm. shelters. It's going to take us being brave enough to be on the front line. And when we hear the stories of frontline work, we have to see ourselves in those stories. We can't say those people, oh, aren't they wonderful? The Filipino nurse, isn't she great? We have to say, well, that could be my daughter. That could be my son. That's, I have to also be willing to be on the front line and I think stories of braveness and the ordinariness of heroic behavior. We need those stories in front of us in order that we can also be on the front line. A big part of Story Center's work is we want to be revolutionaries. We don't want to just make it comfortable for everybody to tell a story. We want uncomfortable stories to force themselves into our mind So that we have to deal with it so there's got to be a bit of that willingness to learn from this period as opposed to gosh i'm glad i didn't have to be there
1: yes absolutely and two things rise up for me one of them is there are front lines everywhere so it's not like over there and the other one thing a story can do in service to even those who have the impulse to contribute is to help them understand the dimensions of their own bubble that they can't see. We're all protected in some way, and you and I in particular, just by our, our geezer whiteness. It's interesting. I was talking to a young guy in a conversation the other day, and, I, and and he's organizing. And I asked him, what what's the role the community's stories play in the organizing? And... He thought long and hard, and he finally said, the things I'm trying to get across, I can't do it. I have to get them to do it. And that's exactly the story you told about your dad, which is, why would I want to listen to some outsider who thinks he knows better than I do? My neighbors know, and I trust them.
2: Yeah, trust is a good word. Stories build trust, but when the trust is already in that community of shared experience, of lived experience, of culture then their trust is there inherently. And a lot of this work is about decentralizing who gets to be in control of the story uh, in a way that makes the authority always generated from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. Yeah. And none of it's easy. (laughs) It's like, you know, in some ways, I'm a small businessman that's kept a little business going. For a long time, I go after institutions that want to use the tool in some way. and They hire me for one reason, and I give them some new idea. It's really a modest attempt at continuing the kind of work that I felt was getting harder for me to do in theater because of the economics and what neoliberalism did to the social contract and all these things that in some other world, and I had friends in those worlds, New Zealand (laughs) Scandinavia, (laughs) other places, well, they paid for arts. They really thought cultural work was the right mechanism. But we figured out how to do it anyway, and we found a model that kept us going. And if nothing else, I'm just proud of the fact that these values could make it through this technology-driven worldview that has gobbled up the world off this coast of ours, right? It's gobbled up the world. And we're the humanist inside of it, fighting. It's going to be humanistic. This isn't so that somebody can sell you something you don't want. This is also a tool for the oldest process in human culture, making good stories that help us.
1: Yeah, well, making good stories that help us. (laughs) I think that's a good point to close on.
2: Adios. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: And bye-bye to all of our listeners we'd like to thank all of you out there for tuning in as you can probably tell change the story change the world is a labor of love and knowing that there are folks out there like you traveling along with us makes all the difference so for myself judy munson our music maestro our scribe andre nebe and you 235 our mystery mentor we'd like to express our deep appreciation and remind you that you can express yours by subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with your friends and enemies. So, for right now, this is Bill Cleveland for Change the Story, Change the World, signing off till next time. Stay well, help folks, and make something useful. Adios.